Hello, everyone. So, it happened. Yesterday, it happened. We have an agreement on a new data privacy framework for now. Max Trems and his group have already, of course, said uh, they'd issue a challenge. So that'll be fun for those of you trying to advise clients or working in-house to manage a privacy program and the like. NYOB says uh, the new agreement is largely a copy of Privacy Shield, and it will challenge the decision, as I said already. Uh, I was thinking the other day about how this could play out. Trims is still a relatively young guy, so no doubt he's got gas left in the tank to keep challenging these policies. But what if, like me, Shrems dreams of a day when he can move to a remote farm and open an animal sanctuary? Who will replace Shrems? And is there, in fact, perhaps another kind of farm somewhere where they're just training little mini Shrems in activism? I don't know. I get lost in my own dreams sometimes, but I do think this thing is going to go on forever, Shrems or not but mostly with Trumps. As y'all know, the European Commission had to decide if the U.S. had made substantial improvements to parts of the framework the EU found concerning. Specifically, it wanted changes to the redress mechanisms available to EU citizens if they felt aggrieved. It wanted some limitations put on U.S. intelligence agencies' powers to scoop up bulk data on EU citizens. And it wanted assurances that the new Data Protection Review Court, which would handle complaints, is truly independent given that it's technically housed within the Department of Justice. For news on global data transfers, I typically turn to the IPP's Caitlin Fennessy for insights. Here's what she said via Twitter on the highlights. Number one, the agreement allows you to use whatever transfer mechanism. So companies using SCCs, as Caitlin says, can now mark their transfer impact assessments for government access complete. Number two, if you were certified under Privacy Shield, there should be a transition period for you to update your policies for the new framework and come into official compliance. Here's what NYOB says is the problem or problems with the DPF. First, uh, United States FISA Section 702 requirements on collecting bulk data without a warrant say that the monitoring of communications data must be both necessary and proportionate to achieving a legitimate goal. The CJEU in Striking Safe Harbor Down said that definition, uh, proportionate, doesn't jive with proportionate under the EU's Charter of Human Rights. Uh, Under the new agreement, the European Commission has said that FISA 702 is proportionate to, quote, an undisclosed U.S. understanding of the word, end quote. So Schrem says this way the EU and the U.S. were able to claim they agreed on the same word, proportionate, even though there is no agreement on the meaning of the word. Number two. While the EU had beef with the U.S. ombudsperson mechanism meant to handle disputes, Schrem says there haven't been improvements made, really. He does cite some, but he says the same role has really been rebranded and that the complaining individual in the EU won't have any direct interaction with the U.S. bodies uh, who will handle complaints. Instead, they'll only have access to their EU DPA. So you're never going to be able to actually talk to the customer service rep who's handling your complaint type of thing. Anyway, we'll see what happens. I think because my debrief on the DPF, which I still will always probably refer to as Privacy Shield 2.0, was so long, I'll leave the news at that. Except to say really quickly, because it sounds intense, that Massachusetts is pondering legislation that would make it the first state to ban collection and selling of location data from cell phones in the state, and, as the Wall Street Journal reports, would ban data brokers from providing location information about state residents. The bill is called the Location Shield Act, if you're interested, or for you lawyers, House Bill 357, because I know how you get. All right, on to today's show. I'm chatting with Tanya Riley, who's a reporter for CyberScoop News. I always love chatting with journos, since that's technically my profession. And I think it's interesting to hear perspectives from folks, you know, like me, who are sort of on the outside of the bubble, but reporting on the big news. We sort of tend to have a different take on things, because we're always having to try and storytell about it. What are the trends? What's really happening here? After our conversation uh, in this podcast, which includes some chat about algorithmic disgorgement as an enforcement tactic, Tanya put out a story on uh, the FTC's work there. So check that out at cyberscoop.com if you're interested in algorithmic disgorgement like me and Tanya are. For now, I hope you enjoy our chat. And if you do, please feel so welcome to share it on your socials. I notice and appreciate. Love you. Talk soon.
I always think it's really interesting to chat with folks who um, work in the privacy space because when I started writing about privacy, it was like 2010, privacy and data protection, I should say. It was like 2010. Um, there weren't, there weren't a lot of people writing about it in the space and there weren't, there certainly weren't like entire publications or even publications with like specific beats on data protection and data privacy. And now, um, there's so much to cover all the time that it's been really cool to see, um, publications dedicate, you know, reporters to, if not exclusively privacy and data protection, certainly like, reporters with a heavy focus. And so I've been noticing your some of your reporting in this space. I thought it'd be super fun to um, have you on and just talk a little bit about your experiences uh, working here. So um, if we could, I'd love to just hear a little bit about um, who you are and where you come from. Where'd you grow up and how did you eventually get into writing in this space? Yeah, well, I, I think that's so interesting because I feel like even now, you know, a dec- over a decade later, um, I, you know, I still don't know that we have enough privacy reporters or at least people dedicated to it. There, There is all this news. But, you know, when I think of people who actually, you know, have privacy reporter as their title, I can maybe think of a handful of people. Um, so that's a really interesting perspective to hear, you know. Um, so I, I, I got into tech reporting a little later than that. I started around 2015 when I graduated from college. Um, pretty much knew I wanted to do journalism from the start and, and knew throughout college I wanted to do it, but had most of my uh, experience was in political journalism and internships in D.C. Um, I randomly got an internship at a business magazine when I was a junior in college, and that's kind of what set off my interest in tech a little bit. And at the time, I was really interested in exploring um, inequality through the lens of technology, which now I think is a bit of a cliche. It's what every tech reporter does now. But at least back in 2015, that was kind of the newer way of looking at it. We had started to reach kind of fatigue with, you know, tech is a solution for everything. And some of these companies that we're going to talk about later um, started to take a more critical view of them. Um, so that's how I got my start and have pretty much been covering technology in some shape or form since. Um in my last job, I was working on a technology and a cybersecurity newsletter, the latter of which I, I came in knowing nothing about. I had zero background in cybersecurity reporting, which in some ways is a lot more technical than the work I have been doing. And I think for me, focusing on privacy was a great way to bridge those two um, topics, you know, hardware technology policy and then cybersecurity I'm a firm believer that privacy is a matter of cybersecurity. You know, a data breach or a hack or the misuse of data by a company might be different on a technical level and a legal level, but to the consumer, they they have a lot of the same implications. So I think when we think of data holistically and and what happens to data, where it goes, who protects it, um, that intersects with both technology and cybersecurity reporting. Privacy was also a way of kind of taking my interest of tackling these scenes of inequality that I was interested in. We know kind of going back to the idea of the prison panopticon that privacy has always been tied to your social status. And that remains true today, even as privacy becomes a more matter of technology and, and surveillance of our online behavior. Um, so that that's kind of how I got into privacy reporting. I have a question that has nothing to do with any of that, but I love accents, and I feel like you have a nice O. Are you are you a Baltimore native? Uh, I, I am not a Baltimore native. I grew up um, about an hour outside of Baltimore, though. So I am a Marylander, diehard, born and raised. Um, I'm a big old Bay fan. My colleagues here make fun of me for it relentlessly, but I'm very stereotypical Marylander. I'm, I'm honored you picked up on my accent. <laughs> oh, man. I love nothing more than regional dialect or regional accents that really, I, I really get, I don't know why I love it so much, but I really do. And I especially love the Maryland, like the O sound. For some reason, I think it's so amazing. Like, I truly love it. Uh, so I'm always excited to hear someone uh, using it. I also think it's really interesting that you got into this space um, via, you know, p- being passionate about inequalities in tech. I think I, at the end of the day, if I could write about, if I could, u- if I could leverage my expertise to write about something and I could make money doing it, <laughs> um, I would totally go into that space as well. Just um, 
I think any type of like, it's the inequality stuff, but also just any way that you like any type of like, and here's why this matters to society, you know, has always been really interesting to me, whether we're talking about like disparities in like healthcare privacy for minorities or like heavily surveilled minority groups or whatever that is. Like I, I always think because sometimes the problems that we're all trying to sort out here, they get, they're very sort of like, but why, but why does it matter <laughs> on a human level? Like it matters for business and commerce and at the end of the day, you know, for data subjects. But I think sometimes I can feel like, is this all really having an impact? Are we moving the needle towards, you know, anything other than, you know, greater commerce or greater relationships for financial gain. Um, so that's interesting to me that you kind of see things through, or if you don't see them through this, that lens now kind of came to, to privacy and data protection from there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's always the struggle specific, you know, especially coming from a policy reporter standpoint, how do I make humanize this story? How do I give it some agency and particularly privacy where there is, you know, the one thing is particularly still on the federal level, this lack of action. It's hard to care that Congress is just tossing privacy legislation back and forth for like multiple years in a row. You know, what does that mean for the individual? And then I think we also have, because at least within the U.S. framework, because of this lack of clear privacy standards and some of the gray areas in the laws, you know, oftentimes I think companies take advantage of that or it's kind of like, well, this isn't a story. We didn't do anything wrong. Like we're just a business, like, you know, technically like these people know we're collecting their data, but that's, that's not really the point. Um, so I, yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of, it, it's tricky there and right. Like these stories do matter to people, but it's not always as black and white as, oh, a company broke the law or not. First of all, I do just want to get your opinion on this because I handle social media for my company, but I'm not like a social media savant. Like my Twitter followers and LinkedIn followers or connections have been hard won over the course of several years. Um, And so I have a hard time with this whole migration situation where people are like, I'm leaving Twitter forever. I'm breaking up with it. I'm going to Blue Sky or Mastodon or whatever else. Um, what's your take on all this? Are you sticking around, uh, for Twitter or do you find yourself migrating? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be curious uh, to, to see anyone who's actually made the full conversion to another platform. I feel like at the very least people are still on Twitter, letting us know where they're going, um, their handles on other places. I think threads will definitely be a game changer. Um, you know, I'm not on it yet because I don't have an Instagram account, uh, shockingly. Uh, so I, I haven't made the jump, but it seems like if, if there's any competitor, it's going to be threads, you know, over the, this past weekend when there was all this rate limiting going on, certainly blue sky became very popular again, but I think it's still kind of buggy and just doesn't, you know, have that user conversion rate that threads is going to have but your guess is kind of as good as mine i I also don't consider myself a social media expert by any means um i'm gonna be on twitter until the ship goes down yeah yeah that's the thing like i'm not i can't the thought of starting over somewhere else uh talk about data portability like i wish i could just take my followers data over with me but it just took me so long and not that I even have, uh, you have far more people on Twitter following you than I do, but I just, the thought of starting over and also, you know, I'm managing my Twitter and LinkedIn and then I'm managing Terra Trues. And so Terra, you know, some of my bosses are like, what's your, what are your thoughts? Like, what should we do? And I'm just like, until I see evidence that there's a comparable, uh, you know, competitive site where it's like, everyone has agreed this is where we're going. Like I'm seeing some people talk about the fact that they're having to post on like four different platforms. And I'm like, that is exhausting. Like ain't nobody got time for that, you know? So I think I'm with you and I'm just sticking around until someone tells me I got to go. I think the other thing, and again, I haven't run into this personally, but a lot of people I know right there, Instagrams are more private or more for, you know, their hobbies or or their friends versus maybe their Twitter accounts are more professional. So on one hand, like, yeah, Threads is making it easy to port over all those people from Instagram, but those might not be the same people you want as you had in your Twitter audience is what I'm hearing from some folks. So yeah, it's certainly becoming a big 
big messy picture over here. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, we'll continue to see what happens there. Let's get into a little bit of news. I have been following some of your reporting and I know that um, as a technology reporter, you have done some work on this open AI lawsuit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this case entails? Well, it's, it's the easier question is what it doesn't entail because this lawsuit is really coming at open AI, um, you know, full cylinder here. Um, essentially the, the basis of the lawsuit is that open AI has scraped data from, in this case, individuals, which is different than a lot of the data scraping cases we've seen where it's big, you know, big companies coming after other companies. Um, but essentially saying, look, you, you've scraped all this personal information. This could be incredibly harmful to individuals, you know, physically harmful, leading to harassment, that kind of stuff. It's also a, a, viola- a violation of their copyright. They're also saying it's a violation of wiretapping laws. So there's just a ton going on here. And in some ways, it's it's a lawsuit I think a lot of people in the privacy community were waiting for, it, both in terms of how... We've seen data scraping approached in recent years, but also just some of the privacy concerns that come up with generative AI when, you know, you're scraping the entirety of the web, like people's personal information is going to get caught up in that. And whether or not you consider that to be public is, is always kind of at the heart of the debate here, because what might be public information in some contexts when it's combined with other information or provided in, you know, accessible ways becomes very damaging or harmful to individuals. Right. And we're seeing some of these state laws that are coming out, like defining personal data or, or mostly I think in this, in the case of sensitive data as like, not just the, um, not just like data that directly identifies a personal, but uh, a person, but that combined with something else could identify a person and actually forbidding some uses around that. I mean, the problem is, and this follows to this case, the, uh, HiQ Labs versus LinkedIn case, which was uh, years ago now, but HiQ uh, was accused of breaching LinkedIn's user agreement by scraping the site for its people analytics product. Um, and now we're starting to see, and that was like years long saga with sort of some mixed results. And now we're starting to see similar lawsuits come out. And, you know, the whole problem, of course, is these whole, these AI uh, products have to train on wide sets of data, right? And so public data scraping uh, does seem like it would make sense. But as you said, um, there's a couple of, like, I think, great points that were made in the story that you wrote. Uh, One of them by this guy, Tim Edgar, you interviewed, who's a computer science professor at Brown University, who said, they're taking personal data that has been shared for one purpose and using it for a completely different purpose without the consent of those who shared the data. It is, by definition, a privacy violation or at least an ethical violation, and it might be a legal violation. Um, But then you also point out, and I'm curious to just hear your thoughts on this after I um, dispatch this next quote, which was from Megan Iorio. I don't know how I said, do you know how to say that? Your guess is as good as mine. Megan Iorio. Megan, I'm so sorry. Uh, Please shoot me a note on Twitter if I butchered your name from Epic, who says that, you know, policing this is going to be tough because she says it's going to be a -a whack-a-mole situation where people are trying to go after each company collecting our information to try and do something about it. It'll be a very similar situation. Uh, It will be very similar to a situation we have with data brokers where it's just impossible to control your information. Like, you know, uh, the horse has already left the stable or or whatever uh, metaphor you want to use. But this is a difficult and complicated problem to police, right? Yeah, I mean, Megan's quote definitely really stood out to me as well. And, you know, going back to how data brokers are treated in privacy, even in states with pretty comprehensive or, or stricter privacy laws like California, something like what is considered public information is still carved out. So, you know, the kind of people search data brokers that have your name, your address, they're totally in the clear. And, you know, we could see ourselves with a similar situation with AI, except for now it's even more data. It's, you know, tied together in, in I think, more sophisticated ways than your average data broker. But it's a lot of the same problems. And to Megan's point, you know, we're going to see sort of the same whack-a-mole situation where consumers just won't know, you know, won't have an easy way to opt out, won't have an easy way to protect themselves. And in many cases, probably just won't have any option to get this data removed. Um, So this lawsuit, I think, is trying to kind of preempt 
uh, the the data AI privacy <laughs> and the other complication too, right, is that we don't have an AI law yet. We don't even have a federal privacy law, and so a lot of the times when companies are bringing each other to court or what have you, individuals are suing. It's based on really old and outdated laws that kind of get you as close to or or can allege something that otherwise you know, it's not necessarily privacy, but it might end up in, you know, the practice being forbidden, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there there is no federal privacy law. The, the privacy laws we see, say, in this case are California and then Illinois, which is actually one of the few kind of more comprehensive privacy laws that protects public information. Most of them carve it out. Um, and then, yeah, wiretapping. They're really going for a lot of different arguments here, but it would be a lot more straightforward if there was a federal privacy law to bring this under. I think as 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 people who have uh, done the same job or a similar job and tried to convey all this important stuff in layman's speak uh, to our broader audience. Um, but one case that I, you know, uh, I thought of you when I read it, uh, partly because you were reporting on it and also had a history I learned of reporting on this, um, and it actually didn't, uh, it wasn't on my radar until this most recent case. But the Premom case, um, the FTC recently came down on Premom for some of its data practices. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the story that you wrote and also a little bit about um, your history with the story? Yeah, so I mean, this was definitely a throwback for me. I actually started getting emails um about the order that we'll talk about, like when I was on vacation a few weeks ago, and I'm like, why are all these state AG office, offices reaching out to me? And they're like, it's about a story you wrote a while ago. And I'm like, what could this be? And then it all kind of clicked. But essentially, Premom is this fertility app. app it's used by millions of women. Um, it's for the most part free, which of course we love from our apps, right? Free. We just have to give them our data. No big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's very popular. It's one of the highest ranking fertility apps. It's also tied to um, a company that does fertility testing strips, et cetera. Um, so essentially what happened um, is in 2020 research, which I was the first to report, I worked with the researchers on this story. Um, they essentially discovered that this app, Premom, was sending information like unique identifiers, which we know are, you know, companies say they're not sensitive data, but we know can actually be very sensitive data and can be tied used to be tied to identities depending upon other information you have. Um, but was sharing this information with some kind of random Chinese advertising companies, which happened because, you know, they had these developers just kind of shoving SDKs into the application, presumably not really knowing, you know, what these companies were, what they were doing, not knowing that they were actually sending data to these third parties. Um, but even even back then, and this was, you know, three, not three years, two years before the, about two years before the Dobbs decision, um, the idea of sending women's fertility data to, to Chinese companies was not one that, you know, Congress was a fan of or, or a lot of the users were a fan of. Um, so that came out. It kind of caused like a little buzz, like Amy Klobuchar and a few people wrote a letter to the FTC asking them to investigate, you know, what's going on with this app. Um, I heard nothing about it until a few weeks ago. Um I, I think there was some reporting about maybe a year ago from also from the Washington Post, um, which is where I was at when I wrote the original story. But I honestly missed it until um, the order came out. But essentially, in the course of this invest, the FTC did end up investigating, as did a few state um, attorney general's offices, D.C., um, Connecticut and Oregon. And so essentially what the FTC found was not only were they sharing data with these Chinese advertising companies without user permission, they had also been sharing um, more sensitive health data with Google and Apps Flyer, which is advertising SDK, um, that it, it wasn't exactly health data, but it was data, it was events that were labeled in a way that indicated health data, like if a woman logged her period or logged like a pregnancy. So you could you could infer certain health data from it. And the FTC found that in violation of its um, health breach law. So essentially, you know, you're sharing health information, you didn't tell users, this is a violation. Um, and so the FTC and the state ADs reached a settlement um, with Premom's parent company last week. Um, and essentially, Premom had to agree to pay 100K to the states and 100K to the FTC. 
and then refrain from sharing personal health data with third parties going forward. So you, you can imagine where, you know, maybe three years ago, this was interesting. Now, a year out from the Dobbs decision, when the FTC has been, you know, explicitly tasked by the White House with protecting reproductive health data is something that's on the AG's mind. This this took on kind of a new importance. Um, and I think it's gotten a lot more attention because of those reasons. Yeah, I think that's so interesting to see, like, political realities on the ground really impacting enforcement. And and also, you know, I was talking to Mike Hinsey of Hinsey Law the other day about the Washington My Health, My Data Act. And we were talking about, you know, I, I said, how did this get through, like, without a ton of opposition from industry who has a lot to lose by such stringent provisions on what you can and can't do? And he's like, you know, it's it's the post Dobbs world, and there's just a lot more sensitivity around protecting women, um, protecting women's health data, protecting women's location privacy, all of that stuff. And it's interesting to see the FTC start to take on some of those cases. Um, we saw similar uh, provisions in the. Did you cover the Good RX case as well? I, I did. I just kind of as breaking news, but yeah, same kind of situation where they were barred from uh, sharing health information with advertisers and, and found in violation as the same rules pre mom. Right. Yeah. Good or good and better help too, or better health. I can never remember uh, better health. I think it is. Um, but starting to see that crackdown on sharing, and I feel like I, I was just. I was just writing about the other day, actually not even, I wasn't even thinking about the Facebook fine coming down, but I was just thinking about some of the fines we've seen recently and like how impactful are fines and is it more important, you know, that enforcers like the FTC mandate, you know, operational changes that have maybe like future impact on the bottom line, but aren't directly, you know, a monetary fine. And I feel like the to me, and maybe you have a sense of this just from talking to people who are telling you about you know the implications or people at other types of companies who are watching this and reading your beat to be like, what do I not do? But to me, it seems like those types of mandates that you aren't allowed to share data for advertising purposes forever, like that's a big deal, right? Like that has to be sort of a warning shot heard around the U.S. at least, I would think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I mean, I think it's interesting when you look at some of these fines, right? For Premom from the FTC, it was $100,000. For GoodRx, it was $1.5 million. And obviously, we're talking about different companies, different number of customers. But, you know, I don't think $100,000 is going to de- deter many companies from behaving poorly. But, you know, saying you literally cannot share this data, I think is a much stronger enforcement action. And I think you're absolutely right. It does send a warning shot to other companies. Um, I, I think the question becomes, what's the risk calculation there, right? Like how realistic do the, you know, the pre-mom case took three years. Yeah. Three, three years, two, two and a half years. So if I'm a, a healthcare telehealth app company, you know, it's kind of a, a, yeah, I guess you're kind of taking a risk there. Like, do you, do you, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's an interesting risk calculus for the companies. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, like, I know to me, it seems like in terms of enforcement, and this is me not looking at a spreadsheet, but I'm just spitballing here. Uh, you know, I feel like we often see regulators go after the big, the big fish because, you know, people are watching those companies as leaders in the space. And because if you have Facebook or Google in a headline, you know, that's going to, that's going to make some waves. If you have, you know, Facebook and, you know, 5 billion in a headline, that's going to make some waves. But I think it's a different risk calibration if the FTC is coming at, like I was looking at pre-mom the other day. And I think, uh, according to, to websites that I was, I was trying to surmise, you know, how big they are. And, you know, they only got started up, I think in like 2019, 2018, they've got like, somewhere between uh, one and 50 employees or 25 and 50 employees, like small, small operation. Um, Although I know that thousands of women, even on their own site, it boasts, you know, thousands of women are already using this app. So they probably grew pretty quickly. But I would think 
you know, if you're a Facebook, the risk calibration is different. It's like, well, you can hit us with a giant fine. We can pay it. No big deal. We've got tons of lawyers, you know, in-house and out-of-house that can handle litigation. Um, we've got money stored away for potential fines, et cetera. Whereas I would think some of these smaller health apps that are emerging and that are really just getting going that like, that is a pretty dangerous calculation. Like not just again, like not even the fine, but if you were planning on monetizing data, um, you know, as, as something that fuels your engine. And then this early on, the FTC says never again, like that's a big hit, I would think on the, uh, income spreadsheet, you know, <laughs> different, yeah, type, I mean, different hit than Facebook, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that the other interesting distinction and in what I think about is at least in the pre-mom case. And I think to some extent, the GoodRx case, some of this was just these companies like not paying attention and sharing data without realizing it, or mm. at, at least certainly for pre-mom, like in terms of like the sharing with the Chinese companies, like, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there, there was some nefarious purpose behind it, but I think they just hired someone to develop their app and just didn't realize that this data was being shared, or at least that's what they claim. Right. So I, and I think, you know, we stick these software development kits in every app and, you know, we're just sending data everywhere and these companies don't really think much about like just, oh, hey, this is like free code for us, basically. And I think that's another kind of trend we're seeing in these FTC enforcement patterns. They're saying, right, like you don't get to be negligent just because you don't understand your technology. Like you have to be aware of the harms that could be potentially involved here. Totally. Yeah, that's fair. I wasn't even really thinking of that aspect of it. For folks who aren't as as familiar, and you don't have to go into the into the the real weeds, but can you talk just at a high level about um, app development and where SDKs fit in, like how that works? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I feel like I'm still teaching myself that. Um, but essentially, SDKs are kind of like a trade off that companies make, right? They, they get code that helps them collect analytics in a certain way. And sometimes the downside of that is what we see, or, or frankly, the benefit for the, the SDK maker is that they are receiving that data in return. So, right, I'm using Google Analytics and I, as the company, can use those analytics myself, but also I'm sending that information to Google. And whether or not I'm telling customers about it kind of dictates whether or not that's a bad practice. Um and, you know, I think particularly when we get to these bigger companies like Google and Facebook, which we know just collect billions of data points and don't always know where that data is even going, um, there's a question of, like, what the direct harm is. But, it, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting kind of tricky little situation there. And I think that's where it kind of comes in with some of these, particularly smaller companies are just throwing together apps, don't necessarily realize the data sharing that is involved. Obviously, there are with some of the bigger relationships, like there's kind of a relationship there in terms of what the the benefit is for both parties. Um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. definitely like I'm probably not doing a great job explaining it technically, but essentially it's like no, no. free code that you get to stick. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's helpful. That's I just wanted to give some context for folks who I I try and cast a wide net so that if like you're not like a super expert on all of this stuff, you can still kind of like get something, uh, get take away something. And I think the the SDK aspect of this case is actually something that I was overlooking when I was when I was thinking about it. Um, so thank you for that. I, I saw yeah, someone I write mean, a headline. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I saw a headline, someone was writing on LinkedIn the other day, I think it was Odia Kagan, who, I don't know if you've chatted with her, but she's uh, just a, man, that woman, she's got a lot of knowledge inside, and she's happy to share it, and I always love when she does, but her headline, I think, was like, the FTC's coming for your SDKs, uh, which I thought was sort of an interesting, uh, it's an interesting area that I haven't written enough about. Uh, like you, you know, you mentioned you're sort of just teaching this uh, to yourself at the moment as well. I think that's super interesting, and I, I'm not sure to what extent it is mentioned in the order. Like I, I don't remember how the FTC framed it, but the other, I think, techie piece of the story that was new when I was writing about in 2020 was this idea of a unique identifier, which at the time, and I think even now, companies, you know are kind of like, this isn't sensitive information. It's just like a number that we assign your phone. How could that possibly like be used to de-anonymize de you? 
And fast forward three years when we have the FTC specifically saying, hey, actually, this information can be sensitive. It can be used to, to tie someone to an actual identifier. Our understanding of the way this technology works has changed a lot. And it's no longer tech companies kind of defining the terms of like, hey, nothing to see here. This isn't a big deal. Um, so it, it is interesting to see the FTC take on these more technical elements and explain how they fit into this privacy framework. I'm always curious from folks who have to understand this beyond, again, like the jargon and the like the specific provisions, but someone who is like really painting a picture for folks, you know, there's been uh, certainly a whole bunch of controversy. There always is. Every FTC, you know, every class of commissioners, if you will, there's, you know, uh, whichever side is not in power at the time is always, you know, lodging all sorts of uh, criticism over the direction. But sp- particularly when Khan came in, you know, she's faced a lot of criticism um, over her enforcement. And I'm just curious if you sort of have thoughts as you've been reporting on the FTC, uh, specifically as it's made up right now, any sort of like trends or just thoughts that you have about enforcement? Yeah, well, I, I think the Lena concept is so interesting because a lot of, I think, what kind of attracted political scrutiny started in the antitrust space. And it's kind of bled into, and I don't, you know, I don't know if this is FTC specific or just, you know, after the Supreme Court decision about the EPA, like, um, just generally how agencies wield their power, but, you know, going back to their privacy rulemaking, which we may or may not ever see, you know, there was a lot of kind of concern about the FTC, you know, stepping out of its, its authorities or, you know, this is something Congress should be passing a privacy law, which I think the FTC totally agreed with all the FTC, you know, Bedoya and Khan were like, great, we would love Congress to pass a privacy law until then we're going to do our thing. Yes, um, we would all, think- to be clear, we would all news, you know, news writers and companies alike, uh, just in case anyone from Congress is listening, we would all really love that. But anyway, sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and I, you know, I, I do think in, and, you know, there's always a, and this is the thing where I'm always having to consult lawyers about the, the rulemaking process at the FTC and the way their authorities work, because some of it is quite Byzantine. But um, to me, kind of the interesting things are the trends in which we see them using authorities in new ways. Um, I think the pre-mom and good RX enforcement uh, orders are an example of that. And we've seen since then, they're trying to update the health breach notification rule to make how it applies to, you know, telehealth and fertility apps and some of these health apps that obviously don't fall under HIPAA um, clearer. So that's been interesting. Um, The other area where I feel like they've been using their authorities in a really novel way that's very interesting is in the educational technology space. And what I think is particularly interesting about that space um, is the way we kind of have this clash between, I'm going to have to remember the acronym here, but the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, often in tension with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. And what we've seen from one of their most recent enforcement actions, in fact, this week, um, is in some ways they were saying, well, sorry, I'm going to start. That's okay. Um, But essentially, you know, they were, this was a COPPA enforcement action, so it was not related to FERPA, um, which is frankly how a lot of these ad tech companies get away with what they are doing because they're getting these kind of carte blanche permissions from schools to do things that, frankly, a, a lot of people in the educational advocacy space don't think are ed- education-related. Um, but this was a really novel application. They said for the first time, like, look, you cannot uh, force students to share personal data in order to participate in educational online activities. So they're right, trying to clamp down on this idea that like everything a company wants to collect data on is suddenly an educational activity or just because we're an ed tech company, like we can collect data under the skies of education. Um, so was this, I thought an, that was, this was an enforcement action? It was a proposed order. I don't know that the company has agreed to it. The company was Edmodo. But we have seen more interest in the ed tech space, um, which has otherwise, you know, been pretty unregulated. And as I said, gets away with some kind of wild data collection practices. Um, so that's been interesting. But yeah, just how they're taking, and to your point earlier, kind of taking these very like, I don't want to say extreme because that's not the right word, but very like forceful actions of like, you just cannot use this data anymore. Or we are like car blocks, like 
preventing you from using this data. Um, the, the Facebook um, proposed order um, for violating uh, the previous agreements, this total ban on prof- meta-profiting off of children's data, and not just ban on profiting off of children's data, pretty much a, the other part of that order that I found very interesting was this blanket ban on like just introducing any new products until the company comes into compliance. Oh, um, this is Which, the this is the proposed order with Facebook, right? Facebook, it's yes. not official yet, but they've Facebook is now has time to respond to the FTC saying we're thinking about banning your ability to uh, profit off of children's data. Right. Yeah. So this is the proposed order that also came out this month. So definitely not final. I, I don't see Meta agreeing to it anytime soon. Um, but you know. I, from what I understand from conversations with people much smarter than me, like a lot of this order was pretty unprecedented or at the very least very rare. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone can think of another time when I, the FTC has specifically told a company they cannot launch new products until they come into compliance. Yeah. That's if I'm wrong. Wild. So, that's yeah. so interesting. I can think of nothing worse, <clears throat> you know, for tech. I mean, we can't really call them a startup anymore, but you know, working in tech, product deployment and future deployment is like the most important telling them that they can't until that is like, that's creative. That is definitely creative. Yeah. And when you think about compliance and this is not, you know, trying to throw them at a bone or anything, but compliance is normally not an overnight solution. It's something that takes a while to actually occur. Like we know meta was undertaking a number of steps, like after the, I'm going to forget what year it is, but from the previous agreements they reached with the FTC and and said as much after this um, proposed order came out, like, look at, you know, actually the auditors that we're doing, we're working towards this, we're doing better. So you have, yeah, it's it's very interesting kind of dilemma for Meta there because I I don't think they're going to turn on a light switch and overnight become compliant. So what that means for their business model is pretty staggering. Yeah, that's interesting. It it reminds me too of another thing that I was writing about when we were talking about like uh you know defines do fines work or are there more effective deterrents? Like first of all, I can certainly see the FTC saying you can't release until being very effective. But then there's also you know what we saw for example in the Weight Watchers case where it's like alg- algorithmic disgorgement. It's like you have to actually delete the algorithm that was helping you profit off of people's data. Like also very impactful, I would think. So. It is interesting to see the agency sort of open up its toolbox and uh, create some new ways to enforce. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up uh, the Weight Watchers case because that's something I, I totally forgot about. But yes, the algorithmic discouragement is another really interesting enforcement technique we've seen them use. Yeah, like, you know, if the fines aren't working, well, we've got a few other tools, uh, you know, in our little box here. Which one would you like? <laughs> you know, which one would you like us to play with? Uh, none of the above sound good to me if I'm a company. But speaking <laughs> speaking about children's data, just briefly, because I know um, you've been reporting a bit on this, too. And you mentioned, um, you know, we've got FERPA, we've got COPPA, and then there are, you know, ways that... Um, children are still sort of subject to some nefarious practices that aren't necessarily covered under the law. Um, I know that you recently you wrote a piece on this COSA uh, Kids Online Safety Act, I believe it stands for. Um, is that, do you think that's going to move or do you see, I mean, it seems like there's definitely an impetus um, and Congress is, feels somewhat motivated to move on children's privacy. We know that like that doesn't always mean consensus and doesn't even always mean something gets across the finish line. But do you have a sense of like, is COSA a front runner here? Um, so I, I do think COSA is a front runner. I'm not sure where it's going to go. I honestly am not. Um, I think right now we kind of see a, a bunch of different bills jostling for attention. COSA has by far, I think, gotten the most sponsors and the most interest. Um, and certainly, you know, pulls at the emotions in a way some of the other bills don't necessarily. Um, the, the really interesting thing about this field of, of children's online safety legislation is with the exception of like COPPA 2.0, which obviously COPPA 2.0, like none of this legislation is actually privacy legislation. So it's, it's interesting looking at it from a perspective as a privacy reporter, um, because you do kind of get to, you know, 
safety in many ways is like a moralized subject. Like what does safety mean in Florida versus California? It means very different things to lawmakers. And the way a lot of these federal laws are set up even is they're setting up leeway for state attorney generals to make some of the decisions that will ultimately be made about what online safety looks like. And that's obviously where a lot of the concerns from civil liberties and digital rights groups are coming in. Um, there's also, you know, from a privacy perspective, there are questions about if some of these laws are actually going to create more issues, um, particularly the, the laws that require age verification, right? Are we just collecting more data on children? Like, is this necessarily a good thing? And then with the Earn It Act, which predates all of these other pieces of legislation, we have this question of like, this is this going to disincentivize encryption technology, which would not really be good for privacy for anyone. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so we'll keep watching the children's space and see what happens there. Uh, certainly, I think I would put money on something passing in the children's space before we get any type of comprehensive fi- privacy uh, law done. Would you agree? Yes. I mean, we, we haven't even gotten a reintroduction yet of comprehensive <laughs> privacy uh, legislation, so I think you're spot on there. Yeah, yeah. It's always a safe bet to make. I always, th- you know... I'm always like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. And it's like, it's not that I'm really smart. It's just that Congress is really bad (laughs) at passing federal, certainly at passing federal privacy legislation. So it's always a safe bet. Like you're, you're rarely going to be wrong betting on inaction, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I do think we're going to see a reintroduction in the coming weeks. Um, I've heard that for many weeks now, but I do think it's going to be another, I, I love the term, but as we said last year, a hot privacy summer. I think we're going to have like a lukewarm privacy summer at the very least. Um, so I, I do think we'll see a reintroduction and certainly, you know, we've, we've had a few hearings to that point, but yeah, I, I agree with most of, with you and I think most of the people in the privacy community that I'm not sure we're going to see any passage of legislation this year. Yeah, exactly. Um, luckily there's enough news to, to keep us pretty busy in the meantime. Um, speaking of, and just to sort of, uh, you know, lastly, um, how busy did that meta news keep you this week? I know we were, I had initially said, Hey, let's chat Monday, forgetting that May 22nd was the big day. And both of us were like, okay, this is going to take up the day. We'll, uh, reschedule this. But, um, anything interesting that you, uh, you learned or didn't expect from writing about the meta case or was it pretty much what, uh, what you saw coming? I mean, honestly, you were way more prepared than I was. Um, as I mentioned, I, I kind of just got back from vacation last week and then this week really had not been following this, um, as closely as I maybe should have, but, I think what's what's really interesting about the the meta fine, which you know, by comparison standards, is certainly not the biggest fine that Meta has gotten, but um, in terms of like precedent, is very important. And I think what I found really interesting about this, and what intersects with some of the other reporting I've been doing, is that this is not necessarily a case of like Meta behaving, you know, so much more worse than any other tech company, but really a case of like this fundamental divide between us and EU views on privacy. Um, and going back to the Snowden revelations and this 2022 scrums two case and validating the data transfer agreement that they're trying to get back up now. Um, and so, right, there are implications here. There are implications here for um, FISA Section 702, um, the intelligence authority that is set to sunset at the end of this year, um, you know, the European Union has, uh, council has raised a lot of concerns with that authority. And there were some surveillance reforms last fall, kind of, you know, trying to meet these um, concerns and, and trying to pave the way for this data transfer agreement. But it, it doesn't seem like they're all met. So where, you know, even if, um, even if the adequacy, you know, talks go through and then the new transfer agreement is approved, I think we're still going to see some obstacles there, um, either from lawsuits or just, you know, challenges um, in the EU court of justice. So, yeah, I agree with you. I just, um, I know that even now, you know, the U.S. has been reporting back for a while that like talks are going well and the EU will kind of say like, yeah, they're good, but we have some concerns still. And then, you know, we come up with this, you know, Biden has this executive order proposing this agreement and it's like, okay, 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 we're getting somewhere. But I just can't see I ever, you know, maybe in a pre 9-11 world, but to me, like, I just can't see our national security agencies giving up 
access to data in the way that they might need to, to satisfy the EU. At the same time, like we can't stop sharing data across borders. Like we have to be able to get it done. It just seems like such a difficult problem to me. I just remember sitting in hearings, you know, back in the day, um, which I miss going to the Hill for hearings so much. I'm jealous of you for that, but I used to go to a <laughs> lot three of places with you. Yeah, you, I know. You can I know. Go there, to my next year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were definitely days where I was like, what, you're going to break for a vote. Like, what are we, we don't have time for that. You know, and you're like hanging out for hours while they're doing that anyway, but I miss the characters. Um, anyway, but I used to sit down on these FISA hearings, these 702 hearings and just be like, there, I mean, it's a battle. Like there's, you know, the, both sides will come to you with, you know, the, the privacy experts will come to you and say, you know, this is completely unfair and it's harming our relationship with the EU. And the national security agencies are, they, they're going to be very reluctant to loosen their grip. Um, you know, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, because one question that I've had is, you know, does, if this does get to a position where it's going to, you know, fundamentally threaten Meta's business model, do they do they start speaking up against surveillance laws? You know, his, historically, I don't think that's something any tech company has wanted to wade in too much on, or at least, you know, for for Section Seven Hundred Two. But I mean, are are these companies going to get cornered at a point? That's a good question. I have to imagine a lot of those conversations do happen in, you know, in congressional meeting, you know, in private meeting rooms, um, but certainly not publicly for obvious reasons. It's like, you know, it kind of reminds me of um, when we're talking about passing children's laws, you know, it's like, well, no one, you know, like the California Age Appropriate Design Code, it was like, wait, this, this passed unopposed. And, you know, it's like, well, no one wants to like be against the children, you know, like in the same way, like no one wants to be against national security, but at the same time, like there's so much money on the line that you do have to wonder, I guess, if that starts to be a tactic. I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, the the other point I would make is within the scope of the reforms that are on the table for section 702, I'm not sure that any of them solve the European uh, Union's concerns, right? Because a lot of these reforms are targeted towards um, reducing the, the incidental collection of Americans' data. The the authority itself is still going to be about foreign data, the collection of uh, foreign uh, foreign national, not foreign right. national. Oh my god, foreign individuals. Yeah. <laughs> so so even if we do get some reforms there, it's not going to do anything in this case for Meta. So it's it's an interesting question. Yeah. And I would say as long as Max Schrems is around, um, I mean, maybe, maybe the answer is these companies start lobbying for Schrems to, I don't know, uh, be banished somehow from, you know, earth <laughs> or something because he's, he's pretty good at finding, uh, the argument that wins, uh, even if it takes years and years. So, um, we will have to find out. Uh, I have taken more of your time than I planned to, but I would love to keep chatting with you more as your, um, reporting evolves over time and anytime there's a new and exciting story it'd be fun to have you on uh, and get your take on it yeah thank you thank you so much for having me this has been a really great conversation